Welcome back to Female Founder World. I'm Jasmine Garnsworthy. I'm the host of the show. And today I'm chatting with Bunny Katora, the co-founder of Bloom. She started the skincare brand with her sister back in 2018, and they are now stocked in more than 2,000 stores, including Ulta and Sephora Canada. All right, let's get into the show. You are now entering Female Founder World with your host, Jasmine Garnsworthy. Bunny, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You're the co-founder of a beauty brand called Bloom, which is stocked in over 2,000 stores, including Sephora Canada. You're an Ulta. I want to understand for folks who, um, or for folks who haven't kind of heard of Bloom, aren't familiar with what you're doing, what's the elevator pitch? How do you explain what you're building over there? Yeah, so Bloom is a clean brand really focused on acne-prone skin and sensitive skin. We create products that you need for everyday routines that target some of the concerns that we have um, that are so normal but often stigmatized. And when we launched the company, we surveyed our community and 60% of girls and women said that they felt their self-esteem plummet as they go through puberty. So that's really our North Star stat and the stat that we've set out to change through our products. And, you know, I think one thing that we, so many of us can relate to and, and have experienced is that when we do, you know, go through things like, you know, acne, or we have scarring and discoloration there. It's very normal things that so many of us go through, yet it often feels very shamed or stigmatized. It feels like, you know, as a, as a teenager, when I was experiencing acne or my sister's experiencing acne, it was, we were never taught how to take care of our skin. Instead, we were always just like, Oh my God, we used toothpaste growing up, which is like absolutely terrible. But like, that's like, that's, (laughs) I did that too. I think we all did, right? Like that's the reason that we had. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you use all these like harsh actives and treatments, um, you know, on your very gentle, you know, essentially baby skin. And then you grow up and you realize like, Oh, wait a minute. I actually like caused way more harm than I needed to. And in addition to that, I didn't like take care of, you know, I didn't, I didn't put in the effort towards self-care, um, because I was just so caught up in, you know, making the problem go away. So that's really where Bloom is rooted. And, you know, we just want to create products that make people feel good. And we always say, um, you know, healthy skin is the goal, not perfect skin. And, and, you know, as our bodies change and as our skin changes, um, we want to make sure that our products are always nourishing and protecting our skin barrier. I love all of that. And so what is the like age of your consumer? What's the demographic that you're going after? Yeah, so we're really rooted in um, kind of that Gen Z consumer, um, somebody who's, you know, going through some of these life changes for the first time, whether it be getting her period for the first time, um, having acne for the first time, using her very first deodorant. Um, But one thing that we've been, you know, really excited about and one thing that, you know, we didn't even anticipate when we launched the company is that our products are resonating with people of all ages. So, you know, we'll have people who are using the melt-in acne oil during pregnancy because, you know, they're experiencing different types of hormonal acne and, you know, the cell acid mm-hmm. or retinols on the market are no longer safe for them to use. Gigi Hadid found our deodorant while she was pregnant because she had to switch from, you know, an aluminum-based deodorant to a natural deodorant. And, and so moments like that are obviously really cool when somebody uh, shouts out the product, but it just shows that, you know, our products do resonate with people of all ages. I actually just got an email that my customer service team forwarded me from somebody who said, I think she said that she was 72 and she said acne since she was like 17 years old and she's using meltdown now and just her experience with the product. It was like an essay long, but those those moments are always so cool and so important. And just a reminder that, you know, again, these things that we experience, whether it be around deodorant or acne or discoloration, they're not just rooted in, you know, one specific timeframe. So we do have customers of all ages, but we, we are rooted in that Gen Z customer. Very cool. And we're going to talk about Gigi Hadid and more about your marketing and influencer plan, all of that. But I want to talk about, you mentioned, you know, a Gen Z customer and going through that kind of real transition through puberty. 
which leads me perfectly to this conversation I want to have about this big pivot that you had in the business. Because originally Bloom, you co-founded it with your sister, like 2016, 2017. It was a period subscription box and now you're a skincare company. What was the thinking behind that pivot? I think a lot of people... I don't know. They're kind of like chugging along in businesses that are doing okay. They don't know if they should be making a pivot. How did, what informed that decision for you and how did you come to that decision to shift? Love that question. So, I mean, I don't even know if a lot of people know this, but my sister and I, we started the company, the very first generation of the company actually as students. And prior to that, we actually had a cake decorating business together. So we've, and, and like, I think when we had the cake decorating business, I think I was like 16 and my sister was like 18. So we were like uber babies. And so Taryn was away studying in university. She's in, in the UK studying law. Um, and I was here studying accounting. And as part of her education and her master's thesis, she was uh, learning about girls in developing countries who were missing you know, up to 25% of their schooling due to not having access to uh, sanitation and period products. And you know, it really made her think about how, you know, being from a family of immigrants, you know, how lucky we are that we were growing up in North America and, you know, we had the opportunity to always go to school and that was never something that, you know, we even had to think about yet, you know, had our family stayed in India and grown up in India, you know, things could have been very different for us and we wouldn't have necessarily maybe had the opportunities that we have now. And so um, that's really where, you know, the first idea of the company started. And so we launched with an organic cat and tap on subscription service with self-care goods, really about destigmatizing you know, the, the shame that we felt growing up around periods and not being able to talk about them openly. And, and we really saw that there's, you know, a direct correlation between why, you know, there is a lack of access in developing countries to the shame and stigma. And it's because, you know, people didn't feel comfortable talking about it, including ourselves, you know, in our own households and around our own communities. Mm. Um, and so we, we, that was the first iteration of the company that we launched and a, a partial proceeds, you know, from the very first day up until today, uh, go towards days for girls where we uh, support girls in, in developing countries with reusable products so that they don't have to miss school. Um, and that's something that we're really proud of and something that we started until day one. But the pivot happened because the company was really rooted in, you know, the ethos and, and our why, which is that we wanted to provide people like us with better better alternatives and products that made them feel good and really bash the taboos and stigmas around not just periods, but also acne and also some of the, you know, again, very normal experiences that we went through growing up and talking to our peers and our friends and so on, we realized we're a very universal experience. And so the original way we were, you know, meeting that why uh, we realized wasn't necessarily the best and again we, we started as students so we were very green uh we were you know like sponges we were absorbing as we went and kind of just learning on the fly and, and through our customer base and through talking to our customers and learning from them they actually helped us launch bloom into what it is today so our products were crowd created with them they tried our lab samples before we launched they even helped us choose like the product name and or the product names and the brand colors and the visuals and all those things so it was a very community oriented brand and we work really closely with our customers and we're really proud of, you know, the fact that we were able to see that like, okay, you know, version one is good for certain reasons, but not working for other reasons. And what can we take and learn out of that? You know, the community being a big part of it and and pivot to something that mm -hmm. we feel like is, you know, more scalable and something that is going to be able to be a global brand the way that we want it to. And, and that's kind of how we launched and landed on Bloom. So Bloom's been around for four years now. Um, and it's just been a really exciting journey. You mentioned something before we hit record that I thought was really cool about like focusing on your why and not the what. Can you repeat what that was? Because I think that folks who are in this position of rethinking their business or thinking about a pivot will find that really interesting. Yeah. So I think we, and we learned this, you know, really early on in our entrepreneurial journey. And I think it's Simon Sinek who has a TED talk that's 
uh, I think it's called The Power of Why. I could be wrong on that, so mm-hmm. I might need to fact check. And, you know, what we learned and what we've kind of taken from day one is that it's to be an entrepreneur, to wake up every day and like put your blood, sweat and tears into something that you have no idea what it's going to turn into and if it's going to work and be faced with a new challenge every day. You need to be committed to the why. And the why is, you know, why you exist in this world. What is the problem that you're trying to solve? And, you know, how does it how do you resonate with it? Why is it important to you and, and who it is? And so for us, it was really around, you know, wanting to provide, again, better solutions for um, problems that we experience every single day that we found to be often stigmatized and and to, you know, have essentially a detriment on, on ourselves growing up as well as our community. And so that's been our why from the very beginning, you know, starting with periods and, and moving into acne and so on and so forth. And that why is still, you know, bloom same why today with our stat that 60% of people feel their self-esteem plummet as they go through puberty, but how we're meeting that why and how we're now tracking against it and how we're making sure that, you know, we still feel connected to the brand is it is the same. It's the same from the day that we started. The difference is, is that we are no longer, you know, a period subscription box. And instead, you know, we're a brand that has, you know, core clear products that, you know, meet each of these needs and our products and our education and our content and events all kind of follow suit. Very cool. In 2019, I know that you raised, uh, I've got here 3 million um, in a seed round. I want to talk about that in a second, but what I'm actually most interested in is what you had to do in 2018 to get to the point where you could raise that money. Like what were you doing to get traction to show that this thing that you're working on is something that people should bet on? Yeah, I think, you know, speaking of the why, that was a really big part of it. It was finding investors that were aligned with with our why and who saw, you know, what the big vision was and, and the problem that we were solving. And then traction, we were, you know, we were growing really quickly. We had a few really great partnerships that were just budding and we're in conversation with, with different retailers. Um, and, you know, at, at the end, the products really worked and we had reviews and press and all these things that, you know, were backing up the fact that the products were efficacious and, you know, being a CPG brand, being a product brand, being something that is, you know, a skincare brand in the beauty industry where there is, you know, there's a lot of options and there's a lot of different brands having good product work. So I think those were kind of the three pillars that we really focused on. And, you know, at the time it was just Heron and I, we were alone and kind of doing everything. We had a couple of contractors and agencies. Um, and so it, uh, it, it was kind of like, you know, a lot of years leading up to that point that got us to being able to raise that round. In 2018, when you were kind of launching the the products for the first time, launching products is really expensive. How were you funding that before you had investors on board? I mean, really, really scrappy. Like we were just using whatever yeah. revenue we had to turn it back into the business. We you know, we're just working with our suppliers. We were working with a lot of small suppliers at the time that, you know, had small MOQs or, you know, we we're really just trying to focus and build relationships. Also, you know, I think one thing that is not always the best advice in, in a brand or a CPG brand, but we didn't start with like the same branded bottles that we have now. And we didn't start with everything being strange mm, and beautiful. We, we really started super scrappy with like a clear bottle with a label on it you know, we invested into certain things in the brand for sure, like the website and, and the photography and making sure that all those things look really chic, but we didn't have money to do, you know, a 25,000 plus run of like custom bottles plus custom caps and then be able mm-hmm. to, you know, fill those. And so we, we had to make those sacrifices. And I think, you know, it's definitely a risk because with a product brand, it's definitely not like software. It's, you know, you have one chance to launch, you have one chance to give a customer, you know, the best impression um, that you can. And, um, our bottles, you know, were so far from perfect at that point, but it, we had no choice 
because they, we didn't have the funding or the resources to launch them. And you know, we're thankful that people believed in the product enough and that the product was good enough and the reviews spoke for themselves that people didn't um, knock us for the packaging, but it was mm. definitely a work in progress. And we've actually been, we're on our third iteration of packaging now. And it looks awesome. And I was going to ask that question because you look at it now and I'm like, oh, this is, this is a brand that's like, I spent quite a bit of money on their, uh, on their branding and on their packaging. Cause it looks very slick. I saw you guys at the founder made event in New York and you really stood out from a lot of the other brands there just because it looked so yeah, very modern, very cool. And we do a series on Female Founder World in our newsletter where we, it's called uh, Site Snooping. And we basically look at, yes, the e-commerce tech stack that some big e-commerce brands are looking are using, but we also do screenshots of what their website looks like when they launched versus what they look like now and how that's changed. Because I think, I don't know, you can you can see these really established brands and and want to have something like that, but then that has taken multiple years and multiple iterations to get to that point. And it's actually so much more helpful to see what they launched with that was able to get them traction and what they focused on and how that was able to get them traction, mm-hmm. I think. A hundred percent. It's crazy how far a little bit of good design, a nice color palette and like a good quality sticker yeah. can get you. Um, but yeah, to your point, <laughs> like no brand is an overnight success, even when you, on the outside, it looks like it is like, I, I think, you know, most brands do have to go through a period of whether it be, you know, bad design or whether it be, you know, components with stickers on them or or something else. Like I think even, you know, even product formulations go through different iterations. It's just the reality of being a brand that's ever evolving and, you know, the world is moving at a faster speed than ever before. And so it's, it, it's normal to evolve and, you know, you shouldn't, there shouldn't be any stigma mm-hmm. around that either. Totally. The world is moving so quickly and particularly I think in like this digital marketing space and I'm curious about what you were doing in 2018, 2019 in terms of marketing to get traction versus what's actually working now because things are really different. They're changing like every six months. So what was working then? What's working now? I mean, you know, transparently Meta was a big, big channel for us in 2018 and 2019. Um, It was like, you know, I don't want to say it was easy, but in comparison to like what's happening in today's world, it was a lot easier. (laughs) And, Uh you know, I I think it, again, like we didn't come from a brand world where, you know, barely had jobs um, prior to launching Bloom, you know, we were students. And so it, you know, I think 2018, we were in a world where like meta kind of made sense to me. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, you run this at a small budget and you see how it does and you scale it up. And then if that works and you A-B test, you know, this against it and so on and so forth. And you can kind of figure it out. And I feel like that's like not the case anymore. So, you know, right now we're investing a lot in community. We're investing a lot in, you know, IRL post pandemic and just being able to meet with our community in real life. I think, you know, authenticity is really important to people today. And, and of course, you know, it'd be hilarious if I didn't mention it. Of course, TikTok, a lot of resources are going to TikTok, yeah. you know, both on the organic side, as well as, you know, the gifting side and just partnering with the right people. I personally am like a big fan of TikTok. Like I, I saw like a thing, like a, an article one day, like a few months ago that was like, you know, TikTok's competitor isn't like social media platforms. It's actually like Netflix. And I was like, you know what? That is so true because I like watch way more TikToks now than they do like a TV show on Netflix or on a different mm. streaming platform. And so I think that it is, um, it's really interesting to learn about that platform and to try to crack it and figure out, you know, what is it that resonates with people and why? What is it that resonates with people and why? Like what is working for you and what, you know, when you're looking at partnering with influencers and gifting, what kind of folks are cutting through anything unexpected there? Yeah, I think it really is the authenticity. I think it's so obvious, you know, both for me as like 
a watcher of TikTok as well as somebody who's trying to, you know, see TikToks and, and get people to promote it is it's as soon as, I don't know, for some reason, as soon as you're on TikTok and something feels like it's trying to sell you something, you like don't want to watch it anymore. Um, at least that's like how yeah. my brain works. So it's, you know, I think what does resonate with people is like, again, it's almost like the why it's like when somebody is able to tell you why you should buy something, that's what makes it watchable. Um, versus again, like the, what, like if somebody on TikTok was like, this is an acne oil, this is why you should buy it. It reduces the redness. I'm kind of like, okay, probably not. But if they're like, Oh, you know, this is what my skin looked like, you know, two weeks ago. Isn't that crazy? And then I started using this oil and like, it works for me now. I think those are the things that are like, they just feel more genuine. Um, but I think that's why it's yeah. so hard because essentially you're trying to get somebody to act like they're being authentic. And I think that's why the moments that do go viral or the moments that do get the most amount of traction are the ones that are honestly unplanned. Um, and you know, we'll have like some incredible TikTokers post something and they'll get like, you know, hundreds of thousands of views and we'll be like, wow, I didn't even, you know, we gifted you maybe three months ago and, or maybe even longer than that. Or we didn't even know that, you know, you bought the product or that you've been trying the product. And I think those moments are, I, I guess, you know, to answer your question, what's the biggest difference is that like before you could plan for growth and you could plan for these moments. And I think now they are less repeatable and more, mm. more of a surprise. And I think, you know, there's a beauty to that um, where in some cases you can always create your own luck, but I think it's also a challenge because you can't, you know, you can't estimate a TikTok going viral every month. You can't estimate that, you know, this certain video that somebody's going to post is going to be the one that people resonate with the most. And so, you know, it, it, it's no longer the game of like increasing budget from 500 a day to 750 to 1000 a day. And it's, you know, it's more so just staying close to the community and, and making sure that again, the brand and the product and the authenticity of the authenticity of the brand shines through so that people want to share it. Oh, that's really interesting. You can't plan for growth. That, that sounds so true and really resonates. When you look at TikTok influencers or people that you want to gift product to or partner with, is it about trying to, you know, get as many people as possible? Is there a certain kind of content creator that you kind of go for? Do the, does the following count matter? Do you want them to be in the beauty space? Like who are you looking at? Really great questions. Um, I mean, it's a little bit of like, I guess almost all of the above, I would say follower count doesn't matter as much as like engagement metrics matter for us when we're looking at gifting. I think beauty I think beauty category overall is important because again, it comes down to authenticity. If somebody does like cooking videos all day long um, and then all of a sudden they like post about skincare and they do hashtag ad or like hashtag sponsored or gifted or whatever it might be, you know, it's probably very likely that somebody will feel like that's not, <laughs> not necessarily the case or alternatively, yeah. you know, their, their demographic just might not be somebody who like wants to think about skincare or whatever. I think also TikTok is really smart about, showing you the content that you want to see. And so I don't know necessarily if like a cooking account would post about like an acne oil and even get any traction on that video, or if that would just be something that doesn't, doesn't do well. Um, so we try to always keep, you know, towards categories that, um, we feel like are at least aligned. We try to, we try to include like just, you know, a different variety of influencers, like different ages or different focuses, different demographics. I think diversity is really, really important to us. We want to make sure that, you know, who our customer is, who's behind the brand 
and who's, you know, promoting the brand, the brand, you know, on Instagram and TikTok, you know, that all those three things align and that, you know, we're not just, you know, always choosing one aesthetic. And I think, you know, that can, again, because the way the TikTok algorithm works, it can, you know, it can be a way where it's harder to find, you know, to break out of what the algorithm is showing you. And so we always try to make sure that we're keeping Mm. that in mind. Yeah. Are you looking at gifting uh, like dozens, hundreds, thousands of influencers? How do you think about the quantity? um, I think TikTok's interesting because it's a little bit of quantity and quality. Yeah. I think it, you know, it is a bit of a numbers game because you just never know, you know, the more TikToks that get posted, the more likely something is to go viral, of course. And, you know, there's some creators who have said, like, I know that's especially like around the Grammys or around like the Oscars and things like that. Some creators will literally make like 30 videos that night and like maybe two or three will be the ones that go viral and everything else will get like a hundred views. And so it really is, it does turn into a bit of a numbers game. Wow. Yeah, I know. I, I found that so interesting and I'll be like, wow, I really don't need to watch the Grammys because I'm getting the play-by-play right here. But um, I think that is so interesting. So we yeah. <laughs> we kind of do both. I think um, at the end of the day, what's most important to us is just making sure that our community is reflected and that we're partnering with influencers that, you know, we think are authentic and would resonate. And so sometimes that number is a lot higher, sometimes it's a lot lower. I will say, you know, it also, again, you know, a difference between like 2018 and, and now is that it's not, you know, necessarily like as easy to run a mass gifting campaign on TikTok because on Instagram, you can just like DM somebody, their email is right there. Like they made it really easy to process that. Whereas on TikTok, you can't DM a creator if they're not following you back. Um, There's a lot more like, you know, privacy settings. Not every TikTok creator has their Instagram linked. So it's not always that easy to just reach out and DM. And, And I think that's almost the beauty of it because it does keep things feeling more authentic and it doesn't feel like, you know, every influencer is getting PR and that's all they're posting. And I think that's maybe what hurt Instagram a little bit and why, you know, Instagram gifting doesn't work Mm. the same way that it used to is that it just, it it got saturated. Right. And I think TikTok's already uh, such a, like such a pop and platform that it's only a matter of time. And so it's almost nice that it, it adds a layer of like a challenge to be able to um, do partnerships and gifting. Yeah. You spoke about community and IRL activations before. Are you focused on community on social media channels? Are you guys, do you have a Geneva group? Like where are you kind of, where is that community convening? Yeah. So we don't have a Geneva group, but I mean, would love to hear or we have it offline of like what you're seeing is, is working well in community. I feel like you do such an incredible yeah. job on that. We are focused right now on kind of like more IRL events and, you know, meeting our customers in real life. And we are also, we're sold in Sephora Canada. So we're also doing some partnerships with Sephora Canada and doing some community initiatives through that channel, um, as well as Alta in the US. So it's, I think, you know, another thing is that post pandemic, the concept of how we all create community has also changed. It was like pre-pandemic and then like pandemic community. And now it's like post-pandemic and what that looks like. And I think, you know, people are still figuring out what, you know, what group they want to be in, how often they want to be in real life. You know, I, I think there's, you know, a realistic a feeling of like almost social fatigue that people are experiencing. And so just trying to make sure that, you know, our events are valuable and that they, you know, mean something to the people who are coming out to them. And, you know, there's a lot of enthusiasts around skin and around beauty or around, um, you know, feeling confident in their own skin. So those are the kind of things that we're just trying to figure out as we launch into more community initiatives and really partner with our customers. I know that you just launched your um, Bloom version of like a, of a pimple patch. They're very cute. They're these like little flowers. The purple one's very sweet. What was the process like and the timeline of thinking, okay, we want to we launch a product like this through the product development and then finally launching? How long did that 
did that take? Yeah, the bloom buds took us over a year. And I think, you know, we are our, our kind of like mission with bloom buds is that again, it's really around celebrating acne and around not having to feel like ashamed or, or embarrassed by it. And, and just being able to say like, yeah, I have a pimple and I'm protecting it now so that I don't pick at it. And so that it heals. Um, and whether that means that somebody wants to wear the bloom bud mm-hmm. out in public, you know, during the day, or whether that means that they just want to wear it at night before they go to sleep or around the house, that's totally up to them. But, you know, we wanted to make it be a really effective pimple patch. And, you know, Meltdown is our acne oil that's, you know, our number one bestseller. And so it just made sense for um, a pimple patch to go with it and and to, you know, really replicate and resonate with the brand, you know, means and stands for when it comes to, you know, bashing those stigmas and and taboos, specifically around acne and and for young people who have felt like they need to, like, cover up their acne. You know, this is just like a soft, gentle way to encourage Mm -hmm. that. That's not necessarily always the case. And, you know, sometimes you might feel like you want to, and other times you might feel like, no, actually, I'm okay with, with feeling good about it. And I think that's just something that we all kind of figure out on our own and as we go. But yeah. For folks who haven't launched a beauty product before, or maybe people who have launching beauty products within their brand and they're just like, I don't know if I'm following the same process that other people are. What does that year, like, what does it look like when you break it down? How much time are you spending in the R&D phase versus the actual product development and the packaging versus your marketing phase? How does that all feed into that 12 months? Yeah. So I will say Bloomba, they're a little bit different because for most beauty products um, or like for like your serums or oils, uh, it needs to go through a period of stability and compatibility testing in the component. Um, and so those are two tests that we did not have to do with our bloom buds just because of the way that they're made in the hydrochloric material and um, the clinical testing mm-hmm. that's already done on the material. Um, Cause of course we didn't, you know, we didn't invent the material or anything like that. So that actually did speed up the bloom bud timeline um, in general, when we do launch a new product, it actually takes us closer to two years. And so a little bit about how our process works is, you know, first we'll come up with, you know, what is the product that we want to create? Why do we think that it needs to exist in the world? What's different about it? How are we, you know, if it's a product that again, you know, beauty, it's it's a saturated market. A lot of us have a lot of products that kind of do the same thing in different ways. And I think one of the most beautiful things about beauty is that it's not, you know, it's not a, I only buy this brand and nothing else. And like, I'm stuck to it. It's very versatile. Like I think most of us have multiple cleansers, you know, in our docket at a time. We have multiple serums. We're using like different eyeshadow palettes, like a slew of lipsticks. Like all these things are not, you know, it's not just like a one, one and done. It's kind of like you're constantly switching up your routine, trying something new, et cetera. And so we, you know, kind of look at what is the product that we want to create? Why do we want to create it? You know, does it fit into our bloom line? Does it feel like it's authentic to who we are? So on and so forth. Once we've decided on that product, then we'll kind of basically do a brief where we do a bunch of research, figuring out what the product is, you know, why it exists or, you know, what ingredients we want to be in it, et cetera. And then we'll, you know, we'll share it with our labs. And then we just do a bunch of back and forth with the labs. Some products take like over 30 revisions and they'll be in development for a really long time. Like those products that we've started years and years ago that are still in development. We just are still waiting to get it right. Um, and then other times, you know, sometimes the lab and us, we just really are able to just like mesh and we see the vision together and we get that iteration a lot quicker, which we love when that happens, but it's like very rare and almost never happens. <laughs> and then, and then we go into, um, the, you know, stability, compatibility testing, as well as, um, all of our like clinical tests. So we want to make sure all of our products are tested to be irritating or not. Um, they're tested to be derm backed and derm tested. And, and so, each of those processes have its own timeline. So there's somewhere between six to 12 weeks in total. And some of those can't start until the prior one is done. So like our compatibility test, you know, backs up onto our stability test, et cetera. And so basically as that testing's happening, then we start like visioning, okay, what do we want the product to look like? What kind of packaging do we want it to be in? You know, 
the name, the copy, how do we want to speak about it, so on and so forth. And then, you know, we just keep our fingers crossed that the testing goes well and that nothing comes up at the 11th hour. And if it does, then we have to go back to the drawing board and be like, okay, what, you know, what is the thing that's not working here? We've had it where like, we'll be, you know, deep into compatibility testing and then the product will change colors and we need to change the preservative system or it'll be like, well, actually, Mm. you know what, this is going to leak in transit or if it gets to like a certain temperature, it's like not going to work anymore. And if you're shipping this to Texas in August, you might have issues. And so all those things kind of come into effect. And so that's really where, you know, that process can't start until you finalize the formula, but finalizing the formula can take anywhere between, you know, really quick to years and years. Um, And so then that's really where um, it, it takes a lot of time. And I think for us at Bloom, we're really intentional with our product development. You know, we don't want to be just launching things for the sake of launching them. We want them to matter. I want to talk about your team now. You mentioned in the beginning, it was just you and your sister, really scrappy, kind of pulling things together. What does your team look like now? And how did you think about those first hires? Were you hiring for folks that you can you could delegate off the everyday admin operational tasks or, or are you bringing in real leaders to kind of be you know heads of department yeah great question so I mean the really nice thing about having a co-founder and um, I think for Sharon and I because we're sisters is that we also you know we've worked together for a really long time um, and we also have very different skill sets so basically from day one the business was almost always split into two which is that she's like marketing brand product like the visionary, um, she's incredible. And then I'm much more like analytical, logistical. I do like the supply chain shipping and all that good stuff. So I think, you know, the nice thing is that that was automatically split into two without us even really having to verbalize like what facet of the company each of us was going to own. And then we basically just hired for the roles, you know, that each of us needed support for, you know, with marketing being at the beginning of it and, you know, social media was like first and foremost, we had like an ads agency at the very beginning, you know, design we brought on pretty soon, of course, customer service. And uh, we've, you know, basically had a community role from the very beginning as well. And then, and then over time now we have some real leaders. So now we have like an ops leader who's incredible and doing all the things that I don't know how to do. Um, Once I basically got beyond my spreadsheet skills and sales leader who uh, facilitates, you know, a lot of our retail conversations and the supports and the ultras of the world. And she's been, you know, at support for seven years and uh, is really incredible. And so, you know, we, you know, you get to a point where you can, you know, delegate off the tasks, like you said, that you just need them to be done. And then, you know, after that point, you realize that you need people who have kind of been to the rodeo before and, and can scale and see around corners and support around the things that, you know, we don't have the skills to do. So what does your day look like now when you have a team like that? Are you just, are you doing much of the doing in the business or are you kind of just meeting with those department heads and certain people in the team uh, on a regular basis? Yeah, No, we're still doing a lot of the doing for sure. I think it's, I think, you know, being a small team where we're only, you know, 10 people full time and being a small team and, and also just it, it almost still feels like everybody is running their own like little startup within the startup. So while we have, you know, some, yeah. some more senior leaders, they don't necessarily have like a team underneath of them or a team that's able to handle. So all of us are really doing the doing. And we always make jokes like, you know, our VP of ops is like at customs the other week, like picking up the boxes from the delivery yeah. <laughs> and like dropping them off to get kitted. And so we all are still doing this crappy stuff. And I think, you know, that, that is really sharp startup life. And while things often look really glamorous on the outside and, um, you know, we'll be able to put together like a really incredible event and it'll be beautiful. I'm, I mean, I'm sure you experience this all the time. It's like, you know, we're also the ones who mm-hmm. are still like, you know, pulling up our sleeves and like setting the tables or doing, you know, lugging the boxes up a flight of stairs or whatever those things may be. And I think, that's just part of, you know, part of the game and part of running a business. And, you know, we're just really grateful to have a team that 
is also willing to do the doing with us because it's it, it takes a village for sure to to build a business. The last question that I ask everyone who comes on the show is just for a resource. And that can be, you know, a book, a practice, a podcast, something that's kind of helping you as you've been building the business, but also like up-leveling as a leader and someone who can scale something really large. Is there anything that you recommend? So one thing that I learned very, very early on that my co-founder and I are really big like supporters of is, is the concept of time blocking. Um, and so if you ever look at like my calendar on, on any given you know day or week, I, I block off basically what are the things that I want to focus on during those times. And, and, you know, in some cases it's almost like a to-do list, but for me, it's, it's a lot more productive than a to-do list because it forces me to say, okay, at 11 AM I'm working on, you know, a deck for X, Y, and Z. And that just means that for that hour, I am, you know, I'm not being disturbed. I'm not working on anything else. If I want to like, you know, start working on something before I'm like, well, in order for me to actually, you know, not work on this. I have to find a different block on my calendar and so on and so forth. And it's something that, you know, we've implemented across uh, a lot of folks on our team. And and it's also, you know, it allows us to say like, look, this is undisrupted time. This is time that, you know, I need to get through, you know, major blocks. And what I found is when I'm not time blocking and I don't have that system set up, none of the important things get done. Um, and instead I'm just doing the things that are like landing on my desk that are often, you know, not as important. Maybe they're urgent, but they're not as important. And so time blocking is one thing that I absolutely love. And so certain things that I need to do, you know, on a weekly or a monthly basis, I have this as reoccurring invites to myself that always appear things that are just like a one-off I have as, you know, that time blocked and, um, I just do everything I can to not book over it. Um, but that's like a resource that has been super, super, super valuable to me. And I can't imagine like organizing my week without time blocking. Yeah. I'm, I'm also a big fan of time blocking. I think as you also become answerable to more people, like both in your team or investors or as your, um, as the business grows as well, it becomes more important to like protect that time. Otherwise you really can be all over the shop. Do you, you mentioned like planning out your week. I'm also a big fan of this like Monday hour one concept, which is where you spend an hour on Mondays or Sunday afternoons. You kind of just like plan up the week and you block out those times and what it looks like. Are you someone who does that at the beginning of the week? Are you planning out your month? Like what other things are you kind of doing day to day? Good question. I spend some time on Sundays planning out my week and just deleting anything off my calendar that I don't need or that's not going to work. Or, you know, sometimes I just don't want to do something a certain week and I'm like, I'd rather just move this out, whether it be a meeting or whether it be um, an anniversary call. And then I always just try to make sure that I've outlined, you know, whether it be on Sunday or on Monday morning, you know, what my key focuses are for the week. Sometimes they're repetitive, repetitive from the previous week. Other times they are new. Um, and then I just make sure that I have, you know, adequate time blocked. And, you know, if I'm saying that like TikTok is a focus and I have no time blocked on my calendar for TikTok, well, like that's kind of an issue. Um, so those are the things that mm-hmm. just kind of keep me in check. Okay. Also, are you like, are you guys, you and your sister on the TikTok account or is your social media content creator? Um, like who is the face? Yeah, of TikTok? it's not us. We are not that good at camera. <laughs> um, so we, we try to make videos and we don't do a great job, um, but we're trying to get better. Uh, you know, the authenticity again, coming back to that is so key, but no, we have creators who are incredible and, and you know, show up so well um, and represent the brand so well. So they yeah. do a much better job than we do, but uh, we're trying to get better at it. Yeah, it's a skill for sure. And also I think it's just like, it can be a mental block as well. I think I'm in that space of like, oh, it's it's hard to find the right people to be the kind of like the front facing folks for your brand. But at the same time, it's really hard to be the person that is the front of the brand and is making well, all of that like content for sure. It's a job, right? So it's like, it's, it it's hard to switch gears also from like filming to, you know, content mm-hmm. to doing, you know, the 
the other work that's got to be done. So it's definitely tough, but I think it's, it's fun. I think when, when you can figure out a rhythm and, and a rhyme that makes it feel a little more comfortable. Yeah. People keep telling me like, Oh, just film what you're doing day to day. Just film your normal day and turn that into content. And I'm like, it's boring. It's just me sitting at a computer. What am I going to do? Like overlay, I don't, wouldn't even know what like the audio would be on something like that. That sounds terrible. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's all the questions I have for you. Thank you so much for your time, Bunny. It was awesome to learn about, learn about how you're building Bloom and congrats on all the success so far. Thank you so much. Excited to attend one of your events soon and uh, appreciate you taking the time. Yes. Thanks for tuning into that episode of the Female Founder World podcast. If you enjoyed the show and if you're a regular listener, you know what I'm about to ask. Please drop us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Sounds like a little favor, but it goes a huge way in getting us up those podcast rankings, getting us seen and helping us find new sponsors for the program, which makes it possible to bring all of this free content to you guys. I hope you love the show. See you next time.